Hi, my name is Haynes Lloyd Bennett, star of Warner Brothers Pennyworth, and you are listening to Spoiler Country. It's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us or use the voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Mathematicians and English writers, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Green. That right there is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, it's Hainsey Lloyd Bennett. I got it. I got it. I got it. Today on the show, it's Hainsley Lloyd Bennett, isn't it? It is, man. And he comes on. He comes on. He comes on and talks to Jeff. Uh, he's he plays. Uh, Dion Bazabashford on the show Pennyworth. Have you watched that show yet? I have not watched that show because it is on a station that I don't think I have. Let's see. Is it on? I, what's it on? It's on a different epics. Epics. It's on epics. Yeah, I have yeah. to look. I don't know. So I have Hulu with live TV. So I don't know yeah. if that's in the package that I pay for. I don't think it is. Epics is a weird one. I remember when the show was announced. My first thought was. More Batman stuff, but it is kind of cool because it's it's in the Batman realm, but it's not yeah. Batman. You know, it's Pennyworth. It's, it's it's Alfred before he was Alfred. It's supposed to be amazing. Like it's getting rave reviews. That's what I've heard. I'm excited to watch it. And I yeah, I gotta figure out how to get on Epics and, and watch that. Um, yeah, it's it's and and Hainsley comes on and talks about his you know he he's on the show and talks. Him and Jeff had a really good time and um you know I love the fact that we're getting these actors from these these shows these new shows like this and you know it makes me want when I hear him talk about it, it makes me want to watch it more. Exactly. Well, let's just sit back and listen to Hainsley now because I got to sit here and figure out how to get epics now. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have the fantastic Mr. Hainsley Lloyd Bennett. How's it going, Mr. Bennett? I'm doing very well, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well. I must say I'm really enjoying watching. Great, great to hear. I'm glad you're liking it. And if I heard correctly, I read that it was Leonardo DiCaprio's performance in The Boy's Life, This Boy's Life, that inspired you to become an actor. Is that true? That is absolutely 100% correct, yes. So what was it about the performance that made you want to become an actor after watching it? Um, I mean, I think... For most people, Leonardo DiCaprio is, if not your favorite actor, he's definitely in your top three. He's just mesmerizing. He's amazing. But I think that was one of the first films that I saw when I was younger. And I didn't even know I wanted to be an actor at the time, but I just found myself reenacting and emulating scenes from that film without mm. even realizing it. 
it obviously struck a huge chord with me and the the depth and nuance of his performance just hit me and it, it still stuck with me to this day he's one of my favorite actors and I think it was that was there was a few jumping off points but that was definitely my earliest memory of knowing I I want to perform not necessarily I want it to be an actor but I know I want it to be in front of a camera. Well, I definitely would say Leonardo DiCaprio is one of those actors that I didn't appreciate, I think, early on in his career. But the, the more movies I saw with them, the more I appreciated what he brought to movies. Yeah. You know, like, I think Catch Me If You Can was a fantastic inception. Was Eating Gilbert Great? They're all great movies. I think around Titanic is where, is where I, I first kind of blew him off as an actor. But then I kept watching. I was like, you know what? This guy is phenomenal. Yeah, he is. And he just... He's so detailed in his work. He's had such an extensive, long career with working with the biggest directors in the most varied roles. And not not for a moment in any of his films or any of his performances have I ever doubted his ability as an actor, which is very rare. Even the really good actors, there might be a moment in a film or a scene where you're like, "Mm, okay, that didn't quite land for me, but... There hasn't been one bum note from him. He's, yeah, he's incredible. So does that make you want to take as diverse of roles as humanly possible over the course of your career? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the skills as an actor is you you want to grow and you want to challenge yourself. But I think you also need to know sometimes what you can't do as well. But I guess you only learn that by experimenting and going outside of your comfort zone. I would never want to be pigeonholed because I think I'd bore myself (laughs) you know I wouldn't want to you know so after Pennyworth I ideally I wouldn't want to play somebody who is who has similar characteristics to Bazaar I'd want to be somebody who maybe was a bit more energetic or frenetic or had a darker personality something completely different or at least a shift different to keep myself entertained and to stop the industry from trying to put me in a very small box. I, I agree with you 100%. I, I'm, I'm a high school teacher for my day job. And okay. I always tell my students, it's okay to fail. That one of the most important things you can do is be wrong and, and fail because that is the lesson in itself, you know? Yeah, and, completely, yeah. And while you're, because of your, where your influence comes from, Leonardo DiCaprio, when yeah. you're acting, do you think to yourself, there could be someone watching me and being inspired to act because of what they're seeing me do? You know what? I I didn't I hadn't thought of that before, but as I've mainly from doing this show, I've had people message me and say that they felt inspired to want to be an actor or something I've done in the show has inspired them. And I've had some other friends who have sort of seen my journey as an actor say that my my performance and my journey as an actor has inspired them. And I hadn't thought about it consciously, but I think there's something quite powerful about just being and doing. And you often inspire people unintentionally. It's never my intention to inspire people, but I guess by being your genuine, authentic self, that might just inherently inspire people. So, yeah. Yeah, I I think that's fantastic. I don't think as an individual, and I think a little bit about inspiration as a teacher, I don't think you can force inspiration, but you can be the model for it. Yes, I can. Yeah, I completely agree. I think if you have, you know, people 
see uh, an energy from people. People respond to different frequencies. And whether or not you're intentionally trying to inspire people, if you do something that resonates with people, they just inherently will become inspired by it. So I never, I never intend to do things to inspire, but it's always received gratefully if somebody is inspired by me. Yeah, and because you are an actor, you do have a successful actor, you have that responsibility. I guess you can't have a bad day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, far as your performance, yeah. you can't phone it in one day because someone, that may be the one performance someone sees and goes, you know, that made the difference between whether or not they wanted to be an actor or they wanted to be, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, if you love it, if you love what you do, you are really particular and protective of the work. Obviously, you try and be as experimental and you trust your collaborators, but you know, if you love what you do, you want it to always be the best that it can be anyway. And there's a weird level of, you know, different actors handle it differently. There's a weird level of perfectionism that some people have. Some actors feel like they never got it right. You know, their whole career, like Johnny Depp, for example, he doesn't watch any of his own movies. Mm. He just doesn't want to see it. He does the work and he lets it go. Some people will go back and watch what they've done and they'll pour over their performance I don't know if there's actually a right or wrong way to go about it, but as long as for me, as long as I feel like I've given it my all and I trust the collaborator that I'm working with and they believe I've done the best version of what they want, then I'm satisfied. So, so where do you land on that spectrum of being able to either let the work speak or kind of, or pour over what you've done and kind of, I don't know, I don't say pick it apart, but definitely yeah. uh, analyze it. Oh, I mean, that's, that's an interesting one. Funnily enough, all the stuff I've done that's been on screen, because the the world has been built and I feel like I feel sort of distanced from the character that I've, I'm playing, I can be quite impartial about it. I look at it not just as my performance, but as a narrative as a whole. So I'm, I'm quite good. I can be quite objective about my performance. And I, so far, I haven't disappointed myself. Very early on in my career, stuff like short films and stuff, when you're still sort of getting to grips with who you are as an actor and the craft of it, you do look back and you go, oh, I could have done that a bit better. But I am, I'm quite solid now. I feel quite good about my performance. And I think your barometer gets better. The more you act, the longer you've been acting, the more you sort of have an internal barometer about whether or not you feel you hit that mark. And usually I'm in sync with whichever director I'm working with. And we both kind of know I got it. So I think I'm quite a happy medium, yeah. Uh, and I'm sure that pays good, uh, great dividends for you as an actor. I do wonder if those who do not feel comfortable watching themselves work are missing a lesson there by actually doing that. I, I will say as someone who does these podcasts, yeah. I will say I'm hesitant to listen to my own shows i listen to the oh. other interviewer shows but i haven't hasn't to listen to my own <laughs> yeah i mean it's a weird one i because you don't want to get into you don't want to become a narcissist it's a really unusual balancing act as an actor where you have to be almost obsessive and a detective about what you do but also impartial enough that you can see yourself neutrally and it's that is a not nearly impossible, but a really, really difficult thing to be able to do. You have to look at your own face, pretending to be somebody else, and judge whether you did that balancing act correctly. And even with stuff like self-tapes, actors will pour over a self-tape for something 
And the problem is if you watch it too many times, it could have been fine the first two times you watch it, but then the good stuff has sort of disappeared because you've gotten over it and then you start to create problems that were never there. So mm. you've got to be really careful. Yeah, I would say that as an actor, I do wonder if there's a danger of sometimes getting too much into your own head when you're doing something. I think of like athletes when they talk about when they get into slums, it, often it becomes something that becomes self-propelling when they get into their heads too much. Or yeah. I think it's also supposedly, I think at this fielder, they call it the yips. When you get into your own head, when you're fielding and you can't throw the, can't throw the ball anymore. Is, is that ever an issue as, as an actor getting too far into your own head doing a performance? Yeah, I, it, well, it can be. It's kind of like, again, it's that balancing act. I sort of liken it to floating in water. So if you're too tense, you'll, you know, you'll sink. If you're too frantic, you won't, you know, you won't get that. You won't be able to float properly. So you have to find this really unusual balancing act as an actor where you're sort of just bury yourself in that moment between action and cut, you just block everything out and just focus all of your senses and your energy on what is happening in this moment. Some actors actually are just really technical and they can be doing a scene and saying the words and thinking about what they're going to have for dinner. Mm. I mean, good luck to them if they can do that. <laughs> I, I guess sometimes if you've done enough takes, depending on what type of scene you're doing, you can do that. But yeah, that you have to have technical ability and, you know, emotional ability and balance the two. That's not something that I do. <laughs> I don't stray off that far. But yeah, I like to be in the moment. I think that's the best way to go about it. So, and it, it also sounds like you've had quite a very experience that is helping you as an actor. I, I read also that for a little while you were considering being a comedian. Yeah. It, yeah. it, like a, this is true stand-up comedian yeah I, I mean I loved it's it's all part of loving a creative performative process so when I was growing up I was quite a quiet child but I realized that when I did decide to speak people listened and they laughed and so just that element of being able to make people laugh really interested me and all the elements that came around that. And at the time, you know, you had people like, you know, Eddie Murphy was a, a huge mm. um, influence at the time. And in the UK, there was like Lenny Henry and there was lots of sketch shows and stuff like that. And I just wanted to be able to do anything that was performative that was came fairly natural to me. But I had no idea how to become a comedian at the time. I was only young. So I was like, how the hell do you become, <laughs> how do you study comedy? You know, how do you become a comedian? And then I was like, oh, maybe I could be a presenter because when you're a presenter, you have to be charismatic and funny, but it's a field you can sort of go into. But even that's a bit tricky to go into. And from then I was like, well, actually acting, you can actually study and get to do all of the performative things that you like, which is how I ended up as an actor. Did, did you ever go get as far as attempting to perform stand-up or you never made it to quite to that level? No, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get to that level. I, I thought about it. Like I've got a few friends who are stand-up comics and I, you know, I, I see them do a set or they send me videos of it. And I, I, I think about it and I'm like, I, I think I'm too far <laughs> gone down that road of being an actor to be like, I'm going to throw all that in and, go back to square one as a stand-up. So unfortunately, mm. no, I didn't get that far. And like I said, it, it, I was fascinated. The more I was looking, reading up on your, your history, yeah. the more I was fascinated by it. Cause like I said, not only did you have the experience as a uh, stand-up, but when, but before you even uh, attended the Quester theater school, yeah. you majored in English and psychology, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. 
Yeah, I think that that came from my. I've always been fascinated by people, so body language, subliminal messaging, psychology, the way the human mind works, tribalism, all these different things. So I was always fascinated by people, and I love language. I used to read incessantly when I was a child. I was just obsessed with words. I used to like read the dictionary. I was amazing at Scrabble. Nobody could beat me. I just loved language. And so for me, those two things fit perfect. I wanted to be, I was considered being a lawyer because I loved arguing. I was really good at formulating arguments and rebuttals and counter arguments and stuff like that. But loving psychology and English, those two things, again, helped me become an actor because I, my love of psychology allowed me to naturally look at character work and interpreting words in that detective style that you do as an actor and my understanding of language loving English I had a deep understanding of you know grammar and text and you know what the writers were trying to convey just by the way they would write a sentence I was really good at looking at it and just looking at a sentence and being like well they've got a comma there, which means that's probably a change of thought. And there's a dot, dot, dot there. That means they're pausing for thought and exclamation mark here, which means it's a statement. Little things that you didn't love language necessarily, you wouldn't pick up those cues, but it just really helped me as an actor. So when you're developing how you perform a character using your psychology background, are you developing almost like a a psychological profile of the character you're performing? Yeah, it depends on how much information is in the script. So for Pennyworth, for example, there there was a a brief character synopsis, but for the auditions, there wasn't that much to go off of. So you sort of get an essence of not necessarily a psychological profile, but an energy, like a temperature for that person. So everybody you know has an energy. Some people have a frantic energy. Some people are really still and have a cool energy. Some people are really like charismatic and warm. So I just try and get a a feel for their energy and like their rhythm. Everybody has a, a rhythm and a cadence to the way that they talk, depending on what class they're from, what accent they have. And you merge those two things together and you have a, you know, a sort of an immediate sense of the character. And if the writing's really good, Sometimes you just read how something's written and it jumps. You just sort of get imbued with this person and a voice comes out of you and it just jumps off the page. Are, are you one of those actors that likes to be in dialogue with the, the writers on, on, on a staff like Pennyworth? Oh, with Pennyworth, because the character is from Barbados and I'm my parents are from the Caribbean. So there are certain things where anybody who is a native of that dialect would know that people wouldn't, wouldn't say. So unless somebody is right, you know, I'm not sure. Where, where are you from, for example? Oh, I'm from uh, Rhode Island in the okay. United States. So you would know that people in Rhode Island, there's just certain slang words and terms that people from Rhode Island would and wouldn't say. And there's certain inflections and cadences of sentences that people from Rhode Island would and wouldn't say. And unless the writer was from there, they might get it 70, 80% right. But as a native, you'd be able to look at that and go, no, someone from Rhode Island wouldn't say that, or they wouldn't say it like that. So with Pennyworth, 
because I had that knowledge, they allowed me to rephrase and resentence certain things. But if it's not something I inherently know, as in, you know, in terms of dialect, if, I, if they're happy for me to have an input and me and the character are starting to merge as one, then yeah, I'm happy to do that. But if they're like, no, I'm the writer, you're the actor, just shut up and say the lines. <laughs> okay, cool. I can run with that as well. I, I would think that'd be the, the worst case scenario, having writers who were not interested in the input of the actor, who I would think has not only an ownership of the character, yeah, but probably almost a better insight because you spend most of your day in the head of that character. Yeah, I guess it depends because if you're talking about a long-standing TV show, then you know you probably have various writing staff, and you as the actor, you've sort of lived with that. If you, I mean, I've been doing it for a few seasons. You've lived with that character, so you have a bit more ownership over it as well because it's a bit more collaborative. If it's a, f- uh, a film, though, or you're wor- working with writers like, I don't know, the Coen brothers, for example, who are really specific about every word being, say- being said as it's written, then you just got to run with it because that's the way th- that director and, and those writers, that's the way they piece together their puzzle. Some people are more collaborative and some people are like, no, I'm, I'm building a mosaic and I need you to, to say this piece precisely. Like David Finch is like that. He is a perfectionist and he'll get you to run take. I'm not, not that I've worked with him, but I've, this is what the actors say. He'll get people to run takes 20, 30, 40 times and change tiny little ways about the way you say the word to build this perfect puzzle. So... So well, one of your earliest um, breakout roles was on um, Kingdom of Evan, where you, you, you played the, one of the primary character. Yeah. How did that um, show come about or your involvement in the show? I just auditioned for that. So there was like, a, there was like an acting website that we have in the UK. It was called Casting Call Pro. And you can apply to acting jobs yourself. And so, yeah, I just applied to that. And it was one of the first jobs that I got that was uh, comedy because I don't really get to do comedy very often as an actor, even though I love comedy. So every time somebody lets me audition for a comedy, I'm really excited about it. So yeah, I auditioned for that and I really got along with the, the writer and director of it. And we had a mutual love for that sort of, you know, curb your enthusiasm, the office, spinal tap, that sort of dry, irreverent humour. And we clicked and he hired me. And yeah, that was it. I, I got that gig. So for, for the American audience, audience who may not be as familiar with Kingdom of Heaven, it's yeah. a, basically about Jesus Christ coming down to earth and basically hanging out at a, an apartment flat. Is that kind of like the gist? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Jesus wants some time away from heaven. He wants to live among the normal people. And so, yeah, he, he looks to live in a flat amongst normal people and craziness ensues. And it's my house that he moves into and i i play evan so it's a play on words kingdom of heaven i mean so i i but the, the show is kind of would be kind of an allegory for religion i would suspect yeah kind of it's an allegory on religion our perception of religion and deities and how the whole thing depending on your perspective could be real or could just be a tale of a normal man 
doing normal things that were rewritten in history to be more fantastical than they are. Is, is that what fascinated you about doing the show? Yeah, I mean, playing with, you know, religious tropes and our idea of religion and sort of this fish-out-of-water comedy was really interesting to me. And being able to be at the centre of that with two, you know, two actors who were very talented and writers that were very talented was just appealing to me. And I just really jumped at the chance to do something that was different, that was a comedy, because I just do so many dramas. Most of my work is dramatic, so... I jumped at the chance to do something that was funny. Was there any risk that you felt in doing a show that kind of is poking fun at Christianity and Jesus? Because obviously that's something that some people are very sensitive about. Yeah. I mean, I guess the climate of the time, this was a uh, kingdom of heaven was quite a while ago. So we weren't really in that really sensitive era, like kind of we are now. And I think British people as well, usually take things in good faith. If it's a comedy nobody usually gets too sensitive about it. So I wasn't really worried about it in that context. And it didn't, it wasn't denigrating religion. It took things that are in the Bible and sort of spanned them and commented on them as opposed to trying to be derogatory. So I think we were quite safe in that area. Because I'll just imagine what it would be like if the show did air in the United States and the the reaction to it, there, there would definitely be, a good 40% of the, of the country who would probably go apeshit. <laughs> oh, this is it. Yeah, there'll be half of the country who will be like, yeah, this is really fine. And other people will be like, you can't say this about Jesus. And it's like, oh, <laughs> you're both right, to be fair. The people who don't like it, you are right. The people who do like it, you are also correct. You know, it's it's completely subjective. But as long as, as long as it would be allowed to air, I'd be happy. And then you guys make your mind up about it. And, and, and I do think it isn't... Pr- what the show is discussing is probably something worth having a dialogue on if people were relaxed enough to have it. Yeah, I think that's all it's about. Like just having, uh, being able to have dialogue, you know, and and in having that dialogue, acknowledging that without any malice, some people through no intention may get it wrong, quotation fingers wrong, but you have to risk offending somebody to be creative. You know, that's, that's what that's what being experimental and edgy is. Not everybody's going to like it. Some of the uh, most interesting art and things that have been created are divisive for some people for that very reason. And it, it's kind of funny to make this transition, but yeah. in some way, maybe, maybe this is a bad comparison, but I'm going to say it anyway, because, you know, what the hell, that making a, a show like Pennyworth is on some level risky as well because the fan base is so tightly invested in the character of Alfred within the context of Batman. Was there any view that that was, there was a risk, there's a risk in that show as well. I'm not sure actually, because I think where Pennyworth is concerned, because these things are sort of treated as not, I'm not going to say it's an elseworld story, but it's not, it's not firmly fixed in any particular canon or timeline. So if you don't like it, it doesn't have to be your Alfred, so to speak. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because it's set yeah. in the past. It's set when he's young. It's taking uh, cues from the continuity from Christopher Nolan's Alfred. So he sounds like Michael Caine. He's, he's SAS. But 
we aren't firmly saying that he grows up to be Michael Caine's Alfred either. We're just taking cues from him. So this could be just a complete Elseworld story. Nobody's saying that this is canonical. When are you, Do you find, though, that the comic book audience almost handles these characters like a religion on some level? Oh, completely. <laughs> I like that. Absolutely. But I, under, I do get it. I completely understand why. Because you feel so close to these characters. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you, you grow up with them. You, you, you feel ownership over them. And they are your heroes. You feel so strongly about them. And if somebody doesn't depict the character, I guess, in the way that you deem that they should be, you can take it really personally. And we've all seen it, we've all been there. People still up to this day are having discussions, arguments, who's the best Spider-Man? Is it Toby? Mm. Is it Andrew? You know, is it Tom? Oh, I didn't like Man of Steel. I love Man of Steel. You know, I don't like Henry Cavill. You know, I prefer Tyler Hoechlin. It's like, I don't know. But that's a good thing now. We can, we're so spoiled for choice. Yeah. We can have those discussions and it's a great space to be. And I'd rather be, I'd rather be flooded for choice and we agree and disagree than like we have nothing. I, I agree hundred percent. I do think at times it gets a little to- toxic with like yeah. what's going on with the Zack Snyder, um, Snyderverse arguments back and forth, which is all day long. But I, I, I do think it's both nice that there is that passion for these myth- almost a little modern mythology, but at the same time, I yeah. do worry as well, does it at times become unfortunately hostile for those involved? It can do, yeah. It, it, but I think if we sort of take it that it's born out of passion, you know, people wouldn't be this reactive to it if they didn't care. And I think even though sometimes the outcome can be toxic, actually it comes from a place of love. Because if people didn't give a damn, then they'd be like, well, I don't care if it's crap. I don't even like, you know, insert whatever uh, franchise or brand it is. So ultimately it comes from a place of love and passion and we disagree. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it is what it is. We, 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 we're all winners in this because we, we, everybody gets a shot at their most, even the most obscure characters are making it to the screen. So we're all winners at the end of the day. I definitely agree. I will say there's a lot of characters that have made it to the big screen that my nine or 10 year old self who was buying comic books would never have believed in a million years would ever see on screen. So who's, who's, who's a character that's made it to the big screen or little screen that is most shocking to you? I, I will point, point maybe Ant-Man. <laughs> I don't think I've ever thought oh, yeah. of Ant-Man as being a future yeah. character. Yeah. And the, the fact that he's such a significant part of Marvel's universe is freaking shocking <laughs> yeah yeah that is actually that is yeah you're right i never would have thought ant-man would have made it but then again i could say the same thing about guardians of the galaxy and actually yeah. people would have said the same thing about iron man he's huge now but any lover of comics knows that he's like a bc level tier character you know i agree with you 100 percent on that I, I i will admit iron man seemed like a weird way to start a franchise but then now that you see it you're like how could it have started any other way (laughs) and i I think that's all about the level of love and creativity because if you understand a character or a franchise enough i think as marvel has proved you can make anybody a household name you know the industry thought oh you've got to be one of the top tier superheroes for it to sell you know you've got to be a spider-man or a batman or a superman or one of the main ones but as we've seen 
with you know all these Marvel films that have come out, even with like Shazam. Most people don't know who Shazam is. Yep. Average person doesn't know who Shazam is. But if you understand the character and you deliver it with love, it can connect with audiences. And that's the great thing about it. I agree with you 100%. I mean, I don't think I ever would have thought that Aquaman would be a billion-dollar blockbuster. I mean, I, I love yeah. I mean, I love the character Aquaman from, you know, back in the day, but I yeah. never thought that that would translate to a successful movie. I mean, he's an example of updating a character successfully. Mm. Nobody thought Aquaman was cool. Nobody. Nobody, nobody, you know, maybe with some of the new 52 stuff, but nobody would have picked out Aquaman as their favorite superhero. Yep. And then updating his you know who he is what he looks like making him polynesian giving him these tattoos and but give making jason momoa that character and that look and i was just like wow okay you've made aquaman cool and i, I i'm a huge aquaman fan i think the film was a lot of fun i i really do too i mean is it a perfect film no but it's a, but it, like you said it's a shit ton of fun i mean yeah. it, it, it it hits all it, it hits all the right notes Momoa, who I was initially, I, I, I was concerned with him as he was, who, you know, Alchemy, because I didn't, I wasn't accustomed to seeing him in the role. But then once you see it, you're like, yeah, this works. This is an, an Alchemy I didn't know I wanted, but yeah. I want now that I know he's there. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's the power of, you know, creative teams coming together and forging something that's interesting. And now I can't imagine Aquaman being or looking any different way. That yeah, means and perfectly. I, I agree. I mean, I can't wait to see Aquaman 2 eventually. But I mean, it sounds like you're actually a, com, a, a, a big fan of comic books. Is that correct? You are spot on. Loved comic books since I was, I don't know, really young, five, six. My brother used to collect comic books. So I didn't buy them myself, but my brother did. And I'd read them and we'd watch, you know, all of the Saturday morning cartoons religiously. X-Men, Spider-Man. Obviously, Batman animated series. Oh, yes. The Spectacular Spider-Man, which I think is one of the... It's up there with probably Batman. Very, very close. I don't know which was first or second. I'll probably say Batman's maybe a smidge above because there's more content. But in terms of quality, I think Spectacular Spider-Man and um, Batman, the animated series, are probably two of the best cartoon comic book adaptations that there are. Oh, I would agree 100%. Batman the mini series is one of my all-time favorites. And I and I and I've had I've, I've been lucky to have the opportunity to talk to the people involved doing the show. Wow. Yeah. And it, it's been, you know, it's a great pleasure because that show was so phenomenal. And Batman Beyond was, oh, was yeah. like the first real time I've seen an attempt to go beyond the comic books and it worked perfectly. Oh yeah, Batman Beyond was brilliant. So Terry McGuinness, yeah. yeah. He amazing i didn't question it for one second you know i wasn't like oh this is silly and old bruce mentoring this kid and no i just completely bought into all of it yeah another great animated show 100 yeah and like and i and some of the episodes like when they brought back uh, mr freeze i was like holy crap i mean it, it it took ideas that you didn't once again think you wanted and you see it and you're like that's the only way these stories could have gone you know oh, yeah completely and i think if they, I don't know, if they could get whatever creative teams they get to do the animated stuff in Warner Brothers to do, not to do the film, but I don't know, consult something. Mm. They always smash it out of the park with the cartoons. 
all the time. All of the Justice League cartoons, Wonder yes. Woman cartoons, like a Red Sun, all that, they're all brilliant. Mm. Start to finish. And they're very consistent on the cartoon side. Unfortunately, they've been a bit more hit or miss on the film side. So maybe if these two divisions could consult somehow, they could get the same kind of consistency in the, the live action stuff. W- would you agree with the, the difference being, I feel like the ones who may have been making the cartoons, Bruce Tim, Paul Denny, those yeah. guys, yeah. trust the material where some of the films feel like they don't trust the material. I think that's it. I think some of the people that have come in on the film side, they feel like creatively they are bigger than the source material. So they'll come mm. in and they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know this is what it says in the comic book, but I'm going to change that. And I'm going to, I'm going to rejig that. And that's where I think maybe the hit and miss element comes in. Because some stuff you can adapt and it can come out okay. And other stuff you change it and it ruins it. Whereas, you know, Kevin Feige, for example, he is almost religious yes. in pulling stuff directly from the comics. And not just uh, a visual homage to be like, oh, look, that looks like the Dark Knight Returns, that shot. No, not like that. Like, I'm going to take complete story arcs, story beats, Easter eggs from the comics. I'll adapt them where I need to. But majoritively, I know that they worked because this was a successful comic run and I'm going to move it to the screen. Yeah, that's. That, I think that's a perfect um, summation of the two franchises. I feel like... The, the people in charge of DC, the, the movies, feel almost embarrassed by the characters that they have. While Marvel says, these are our characters and they've, been, you know, they've existed for 50 years. We love them. You're going to love them too if you just put them on you know, the right way. And I do feel that there's a bit of a difference with DC feeling a little embarrassed by, you know, these are the characters from the 60s. You know, yeah. no, you're not going to like them because they're our kids' shows. So let's try to fix them, you know. And that always bothered me. Yeah, I think, I think that's it. And I think they understand the... Uh, inherent qualities of their characters. So something that's always been interesting is what looking at what Zack Snyder did with Superman and Batman. Mm. And there were certain parts of both of those films that any comic book purist would never touch. So, mm. for example, Batman having guns on his yeah. car and shooting cars and them exploding. So any sort of comic book purists would be like, but hold on. Why has he got 22 caliber guns on his car when you know one of the core tenets of his character is no guns? Yeah. Let alone no killing. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think when you look at Batman in uh, in BVS, you, you look at it and you're thinking to yourself, I, I, I can understand where they're going with some of the ideas, like Batman becoming more aggressive. I, I can yeah. see it, but yeah. you, but there was a line there that you think to yourself, once you go to that line, you lost your character, you know, like you, you should approach it, yeah. it, but you can't go beyond it. Yeah. You can push him. I'm, I'm a huge advocate for Ben Affleck. Just throwing that out there. He's the closest thing visually to Bruce Wayne. He literally looks like the comic book drawings. Insane. So I was a huge advocate for him being Batman. He's got the look. He's got the build. I think he was perfect. Unfortunately, the the film wasn't as perfect as a cast as he was. And I agree with you. I think they had moments of genius. The warehouse scene, I think, is still pretty cool. The, the warehouse fight, yeah. it felt like yeah. Batman. There's a few scenes when, when there's Doomsday and you see Batman kind of 
participate in the fight a little bit and you think, okay, I could see that in Batman, but I will yeah. say as, as, as an entire whole, yeah, you, you, you feel like it, 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 it lost its ground at some point. Yeah. I think some of the essence got lost. I think the essence of the, in making that, because of the tonality of the film, I think Superman's spirit was lost in that film. The essence of who Kal-El is got lost in that film. There were just certain moments where you just say, we know Clark, Kal-El, whatever you want to call him. He would never do that. It just wouldn't happen. I agree. I, I think it, it felt like the, the creators of these movies felt had, had an inkling of what Superman was. Cause they keep pointing out hope, 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 yeah. but then they never put it on screen. They, kept, they tell you that he's hope, but they never put it yeah, there. Exactly. They'll have him again. And this goes back to uh, visual, the visual storytelling, which is what Zack Snyder is amazing at. So he visually knew how to communicate what Superman was, but in terms of his actions, he didn't communicate who he was. So after that Senate hearing with the, you know, grandma's warm cup of pee or whatever it was, where it blows up and then he flies away, would never happen. Right. Superman, there wouldn't be an explosion where people are hurt, killed, injured, etc. There would never be a moment where he is that self-reflective where he'd be like, you know what, I can't deal with all this destruction and death. I'm just going to disappear for a bit. I, I agree with you. Like I said, I agree with you 100% on, on how they handled it. I, I really do feel that, like I said, the, some, some of the basics really were there, but it, it really had, it lacked a foundation. And like I said, I, th- I felt when you see the movies that they almost realized it. Cause like I said, when you keep having to point out what the character is, instead of showing it, yeah, you, 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 you lost it. And the, the, the problem with like those trailers for Man of Steel were so freaking genius. The trailers seem to understand it, but not the movie. Yeah. It's well, it's just show don't tell, you know, show don't tell. And uh, yeah, there wasn't enough of that, but you know, Man of Steel is a divisive film. Lots of people really like Man of Steel. Personally, I am a big Man of Steel fan. I really like it, but I also understand the, I'm not going to say they're necessarily Donna Reeves fans, but I guess maybe the more uh, 80s nostalgic Reeves people don't like the more, maybe more dour, grounded tone wasn't helpful enough. But my argument with that always was, it was, it's called Man of Steel because he's not Superman yet. Mm. That's the way I saw it. it. This was Superman's Batman Begins. In Batman Begins, Batman wasn't Batman yet. By the end of the film, he was Batman. So that by the time we go into the Dark Knight, we've got full-on Batman detective, fighting skills, he knows who he is, etc. Man of Steel, I saw in that exact same vein. He's not Superman yet. He doesn't really, uh, he doesn't know what his purpose is. He doesn't know his place in the world. So all of his truly altruistic qualities, preserving life, never killing, those things haven't come yet. So by the time he kills Zod and sort of shows himself to the world, even though there was destruction, in my head, in his next movie, which I, in my head wasn't Batman versus Superman, I thought he was going to get his own movie, mm. he would have been... Superman or the man of tomorrow where we got the Reeves-esque I'm going to save a cat from a tree truth, justice and the American way. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, 
Oh, I agree with you 100%. I found a Man of Steel, I, I do have in my DVD collection. I, I found it, I would say, entertaining, but yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure, hesitant to call it good, but definitely entertaining. Okay. I mean, that's fair. Uh, like I said, I had a lot of fun and I thought it was enjoyable, but I do think once you, if I stopped and there's some details within it where once again, I have problem, but it wasn't the death of Zod. I must admit the death of Zod didn't bother me at all. I thought okay. I got it. You know say? I was yeah. kind of, I was kind of fine with that moment, but once again, I will agree with you that one of the things that I think Mars mean to to me a little bit is the fact that Batman versus Superman didn't build upon it. I agree. I think, I think that was where it, it, it felt like a wasted opportunity to add to this new kind of legacy that you've made for Superman. And that's where it missed the beat. And that's what was more disappointing that they didn't continue that story in the following movies. That was more my disappointment because I was really interested to see him become that man of tomorrow. But hey, ho. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you completely. So what were the comic books that you grew up? Um, was there a particular character that you loved more than all the others? Spider-Man. Well, Spider-Man. He's, he's always been my guy, Spidey. And I think it's because, yeah, there was something about him just being a normal kid that I just found really, really relatable. The, the drama, how interconnected his life was with everything really just resonated. And I think it does resonate with you as a kid because when you see somebody having problems at school, girlfriend problems, money problems, work problems. But then he puts on a mask and this kid is fighting supervillains. It's like the ultimate escapist fantasy. I mm. loved Batman as well, but there's an element, it's weird. You, you'd, I never felt like I could be Batman. Mm. You know, I felt like I could be bitten by a spider and it could happen. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, I'm never going to be a genius billionaire <laughs> that trains himself to like human perfection and goes out and is a detective and fights crime. I was like, it's cool to watch. And I love this character, but the, the likelihood of that happening is nah, it's not going to happen. Do you think Spider-Man has been done correctly in either versions or any of the versions? Oh, uh, I uh, see. This is what's interesting. I think I think Tom Holland's Spider-Man is the closest personality depiction in terms of his age, personality, etc., of Peter Parker. But I don't think he has the best films. Toby Maguire. And I love I love Toby Maguire's Spider-Man and his Peter Parker, but his Spider-Man isn't the Spidey that I envision in my head. All right. I can totally buy that. I guess my friends are pretty close. I like Tom Holland. Yeah. I do feel that they lack the uncle Ben connection in the movies. Oh, that you, 100%. And, and the boy genius. Cause I, I, I think they make him too reliant on the characters around him. Like Tony Stark, where Tony McGuire was more on his own. But once again, I, I, I think Tom Holland felt more like Spider-Man, you know? Yeah. Like that's exactly how I feel about it. I think, as the character, when I think about the different eras of Spider-Man, so, you know, I guess the Raimi versions is like Ditko, Spider-Man, that mm. old lost era Spider-Man. And I would say, what would I say Andrew Garfield is? He, yeah, he is the amazing Spider-Man. He's that, that, that era, that late teens era. But 
you I when I see Tom Holland, he is the cartoon spectacular Spider-Man. He mm. is the live action version of that, which to me is the closest depiction of Spider-Man. But unfortunately, some of the the soul of who Peter Parker is was ripped out because there's no Uncle Ben. He has Stark Tech. He doesn't have money issues. And he doesn't really have consequences in the same way that Peter Parker normally does. Oh, I agree with you. I, I feel that what Tom Holland is missing is an actual Spider-Man movie. Mm. You know, that that's a solo movie. Because like I said, yeah. when you, the movies, I, I enjoyed the movies a lot. Far From Home was a great movie. But yeah. once again, you had to, I think they're be- they would have been better off if they had just removed Tony Stark from the movie. Yeah. And, uh, you know what I'm saying? His, uh, all his supplies and shield and all that would have, I think would have made a stronger movie in my opinion, but same time they were fun. They were, you know, they were fun and you got the sense that they at least loved their character. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, and I understand connecting him to the wider universe because he's part of that universe. I just think you take away some of the soul of the character when this kid that we read up reading his comic books we know he made his own suit and his own web shooters now he gets a million pound stock tech spidey suit it's it it loses some of that street level i'm just a six 15 year old kid trying to help versus now i've got a stock tech suit which has 500 types of webbing linked to a ai it just changes some of the soul of the character that moves it away from being pure Spider-Man. I agree. And I, and I do like the idea of Spider-Man as a bit of a loner because he is, I mean, he's a nerd. He's kind of a bit of an outcast. I think that was also a missing part of him that he is that loner outcast type character. Yeah. You yeah, know? I completely agree. And every, and I agree with this. I saw somebody say this, Peter and Tony are, are opposite ends of the spectrum. I don't think really, I know they're doing it for the MCU, Peter wouldn't look up to Tony. Hmm. He would be this, Peter's this blue collar regular guy. And I think Aunt May even says it in the MCU film, she doesn't like Tony Stark. And I think ordinarily, Peter would feel the same. But for the sake of the films, they changed that. I I must admit, I never really thought about it that way. That's, that's, That's really interesting. Yeah, he's a blue collar guy, every man, local hero. And although we love Tony Stark as an audience, we all know he's really an asshole, really. Like, yes. we know that. <laughs> um, and so Peter would, I think Peter would f- see him and feel that way about him more so. And his driving, his moral driving force isn't Tony, it's Ben, but they remove yes. Ben. And I think that's what changed the soul of the character. We don't hear about him. We don't see him. He doesn't mention him. There's no flashbacks. And so making Tony that father figure, you've sort of changed Spider-Man a little bit by doing that. I agree 100%. And, and you're right. They, 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 they inferred Uncle Ben, but they never actually even say the name once. I know, weird, weird, unusual choice. They just see his initials on a uh, suitcase and that's it. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's weird when you look into some of this stuff and you, and you pay attention that, yeah, there, there are some really are significant that Marvel's doing well, but I think because they're so wrapped in the universe, I think you, there's a tendency to just ignore them. Yeah, there's, obviously there's payoffs and trade-offs for being part of a wider universe. And in that instance with Peter wanting to tie him so much to other heroes... It for certain fans, it's taken away from some of that loner purist Peter that we're used to. 
that, that that's really cool. And I, I really do like that you're a comic book fan. I mean, did how, how did that feel then being in a show like Pennyworth? I mean, even though I mean it's kind of like Batman, but kind of not. Yeah. Does it still give you the thrill that you're technically part of the mythology now? I mean, yeah. I mean, for me, that was like the ultimate geek dream. I love origin stories, whether it be in comic books, cartoons, and films. And so for my first like big studio TV show to be part of an origin story of somebody that is closely affiliated to Batman and to play his best friend was mm. like otherworldly to me. And a lot of the Easter eggs that happened in Pennyworth and a lot of the small references, only I understood the context of them because I think I'm the only like real, apart from Bruno and Danny, I think I'm the only sort of comic book purist there. So what fascinated you about the character of uh, Abaza? Is it Baza? right? Baza? Always yeah, Baza. Yeah. Baza. Beyond that connection to Pennyworth, what is it about yeah. Baza himself that was fascinating to you? Uh, he's interesting, I think, as a character because he's from Barbados and he's actually, in terms of his personality, he's very different to his two army colleagues. He's from money. He's Oxford educated. He doesn't need to do this. He doesn't need to be in the army. He's probably more akin to Lord Harwood or Thomas Wayne. That's the sort of circles he would, you know, frequent. He's from money. He's Oxford educated. He's upper to, you know, he's not upper class, but he'd be upper middle class. So the fact that he chooses to be part of the SAS and chooses to do the things that he does, I think makes him really a really interesting character. He's, I basically saw him as like, he's like a Caribbean James Bond. He could have went into MI5 if he wanted to. Mm. Now, and, and kind of interesting what you mentioned about Baza is that once again, he fought in World War II. In, mm-hmm. in, in thinking about that, did you did that inform how you portrayed him? Because obviously, there's issues, you know, somebody's been through war, a little, you know, yeah. PTSD and whatever. Did you incorporate that? Did you, or did you think about incorporating that into your performance? Well, speaking about the history, the Pennyworth history, their, their depictions of which wars happened when and where is not the same as our real life timeline. So the war that they fought in was in Asia. I think it was, yeah, Malaysian pirates. So they've, yeah, they were in Asia. They've done various tours. But yeah, I did speak to Bruno about which wars it was. and he, But he was very hesitant about giving us too much specific information just in case he changed his mind as he was writing it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that's interesting. So nothing was, there was a loose part of like, yeah, this this is the army they fought in and this is what happened, but don't be too married to that because <laughs> as I'm writing it, it might shift. So I just had to make some internal choices about the war that we'd seen myself without getting too bogged down in specifics. That, that, that's really kind of interesting. I, I always just assumed it was World War II, but I guess at the same time, there also would be a concern with aging the show, you know, this, the character, because once, if Alfred is in 2020, yeah, you know, with Batman, then I guess he would have to be like 90 something years old, which I guess would be not where they wanted to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it, the, the timeline's completely different. It's not a historically accurate UK. It's like a weird 
amalgamation hodgepodge of different historical events mashed into this weird off-center DC timeline. So, but I think that's good because you can't get too comfortable and try and place them somewhere because we're in our own timeline. Mm. Now, because Baza is SAS and because he, and the show is loaded with gunplay and action, yeah. did you have to go through extensive training to be competent at, as an actor of, you know, and, uh, you know, looking like you really are this, um, this expert? Yeah, we did a lot of, we did a lot of stunt training, um, a lot of gun training to learn how to fire the weapons. We had a few different fight coordinators in series one. And then we got a new one, two new ones in series two. And yeah, we'd re- rehearse for, for like, you know, sometimes hours on a fight scene. And then we'd have to sometimes change it when we got to the actual location and change up bits for the camera. And, you know, you get helped out by really good stuntmen and, you know, generous camera angles. But a lot of that physical activity is real. But th- for me, that was just a kid in the candy store bit because as a kid... That's all me and my brothers used to do is like play fight and try and reenact Jackie Chan fight scenes and stuff like that. So meeting a stunt coordinator and working on stunt moves was just like, hell yes. <laughs> I can I can only imagine, like I said, I, I watch a show, a show like Penny Worth and, and some of those action scenes and they are impressive, impressive as hell. I mean, they are really well choreographed. Yeah, they did a, they did a great job with the, with the fight scenes. They're really sickly done, no shaky cam, all done in camera. Usually everything was done in one take and they filmed it each time so they could edit it properly. Yeah, they did a really good job. And we didn't really, on on the fight scene stuff, we didn't have another unit do it. It was the main director. So they gave it the same amount of love and attention as everything else. And and also those scenes also help inform the character of Baza. And I think one ep- scene that was also very interesting is in the second episode of Pennyworth, the interrogation scene of Jason Ripper. Yes. Which Baza is very proficient in that torturing. And it, it, it kind of, how did that inform you about the character and, a, and his potential backstory? Yeah, there was a few things that, I don't want to say they came out of left field, but they were definitely interesting. And yeah, that that torture scene was one of them. I remember Matthew, the producer came to me and was like, you know, we really need you to, to nail this scene because up until that point, we'd only seen the really calm, laid back, methodical Baza. And so it was the first time I needed to switch into another gear as an actor and show a more physically dominant, menacing side to him. And so that showed that made me make some interesting decisions about his backstory, why he's so cool most of the time, but then he's able to show that level of aggression. So for me, it just goes to show that that he's calm out of choice. Mm. You know, Dave boy is an inherently angry person. He's just angry because he's angry. Baza is cool because he is he uses his head more than anything and he chooses to be cool, but he shows that he can channel that anger and he can also lose his temper. So, so do you think the anger is... I'm trying to think the best way to phrase it. Do you think that 
aggression is the more real Baza that he's not showing, or is the cooler, collective, methodical Baza the one that's the true one with he can just access this darker part? I mean, yeah, that's that's interesting. I, my take on it is that the anger. This isn't canon and this isn't part of the story, but my backstory for Basil was that he was actually a like delinquent, belligerent child, very Mm. angry, grew up in money. So he was spoiled and that was part of it. He was out of control. So in my head, his, his dad enrolled him into like army school to straighten him out, sent him off to boarding school in Barbados and then subsequently went to the UK so yeah, inherently he is, I'd say he's an angry person. Then through educating himself and channeling that energy through going through the army and then the SAS, he learned to discipline that kind of like an angry person who learns Kung Fu and learns to channel his anger. I really love that you created a backstory for the character that is, I mean, even if it's not in canon, it's at least canon for you. And that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that's what it, you know, when somebody chooses to deliver anger in that way, you sort of have to make a decision about why that is so that you can make it really specific. You know, people aren't, people don't show their anger in certain ways for no reason. So I had to make sense of, well, why is he so cool most of the time? But now that he needs to turn it on, bang, he can turn on the anger. So that was the reason I chose. So in your determination, was Baza's and Alfred's relationship so tight because of sort of like troops in a fox or, or there's, is there something else about Alfred that makes Baza want to gravitate towards him? I mean, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, in my head, I, again, this isn't canon, but in my head, I always imagined that Baza was friends with Dave Boy first. Mm. So that they are friends and then Alfred and Dave Boy became friends. And then I then became friends with Alfred. So I, in my head, I wasn't friends with Alfred first. I met Dave Boy in the army. We were friends. And then Dave Boy met Alfred and they became friends. And through that, we all formed this bond where we were all this, we became this trio. But if you'll notice in the show, you, you never see... Dave Boy, uh, sorry, you never see Alfred and Baza alone. Huh, I, ne- I never noticed that. They, they are never, you never see them in a pub. You never see them hanging out, but you do see Alfred and Dave Boy alone. And you do see Baza and Dave Boy alone, but you never see Alfred and Baza alone. So, so that was my reasoning for it. Huh, like I said, I, n- I actually never noticed that um, at all. But I, I do think that's kind of interesting that he was may have been friends with Dave Boy first. Do you think, it has to do with the fact that they, there is that common commonality of that anger or whatever as part of what may have found like a sort of connection or is there some other yeah, aspect I you think? think? That. I think they shared the, the anger. I think me and Ryan who plays Dave Boy discussed it. I think their commonality is, is that they're not natives to England. Dave Boy is Scottish. He's not English. And Baza is from Barbados. He's not from the UK. So they bonded mutually because essentially they were in their own ways outsiders from everybody who was born British in the army. Oh, that, 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 that's, that's, a, like I said, that's a, like I said, a very interesting insight into the characters. 
Yeah, that's that. That's and again, this isn't canon. This is just what we discuss as to why our bond is what it is, and they sort of counterbalance each other's personalities. Dave Boy's very vibrant, outgoing, and you know, devil may care. And Baza is very calm and methodical, and so they kind of balance each other out. Baza can become a bit more loose and free when he's with Dave Boy within reason, and vice versa. I can help. Dave Boy be a bit more methodical and, you know, look before he leaps. And, and I do think the chemistry is very strong between you and Ryan. Yeah, me and Ryan are with, you know, and, and Jack, we're all great friends, but I met Ryan first at the audition. So we became, we were the first Pennyworth friends, if you will. I met him at the first audition and we exchanged numbers and said we'd keep in touch about who got the job. And we remained friends since. And then obviously we did a screen test with Jack. And then we involved Jack in this little WhatsApp group. And actually that's how our Pennyworth WhatsApp group started. It was just me and Ryan. Then it was me, Ryan and Jack. And then as I met more people in the show, I just added them to that group until now all the cast members are in this one little Pennyworth group. That's, that's really cool. What, what, what do you think about the fate of Baza, without giving away too many spoilers, the fate of Baza on Pennyworth? I think it was, an interest, it was an interesting choice. It was surprising to me. And speaking to Bruno about it, I understand his choice within his own logic for doing it. It's not necessarily the way I saw it. And I didn't see it happening at that point in the story. But in the larger scheme of things and the way it affects the characters around him... I can see the logic for it. Would I have necessarily done it in that way? Probably not, but I understand his reasoning behind it. Do you think the impact that it does have on Alfred, do you think that's worth the loss of such a valuable character as Baza? Ooh, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, that's something I think that the fans really need to decide. I can only speak about what I think from a very sort of insulated perspective, but... You know, the people who watch the show, I think they're the ones who would be better equipped to be like, oh, you know, I, I, I do or don't like it for these reasons. And, you know, people will vote with their, with their viewerships or their reaction. You know, they like it. They'll be intrigued to stay and they'll watch the show. If they don't, they might decide to leave because they don't like what happened. So we'll have to see what the, what the audience says. Are you set, or Baza, is Baza set to appear later in the series, either through flashback or some other means? It's not, it hasn't been decided yet. That was something that was like up in the air. And I've been in contact with them about it. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to find out myself. And I mean, obviously, as, as a longtime fan of comic books, there's a, there's a reality to comic books where, where no one's ever truly dead. Is, it, is yeah. Baza definitely just dead? I mean, there's no way around it. He's dead. Just, well, just, just it, how well, it goes. I mean, it, with, with these universes and these characters, you just never know. You, you, you know, you're, you're a comic book fan. You know, people yes. get fridged all the time and you're like, oh my God. And then like, you know, a couple of issues later, you're like, what the hell? Right. Yeah. And that's very common with TV shows, especially comic book TV shows. So I wouldn't rule out anything at this point, honestly. And as the show has grown and uh, as it evolved, it has become, it's moving 
further towards a bit more of a, I don't want to say mystical, but it's not like super, super grounded as the show goes on. So anything can happen. So what I'm hearing is Baza isn't necessarily dead forever. Well, there's a chance he might not be. All right. I'll just make sure that that was said and repeated so the fans can and the producers can know that Baza hopefully will come back. <laughs> yeah, like who, who knows? I don't write it. So, you know, with with comic book, with comic book continuity and logic, you know that they can make any fantastical thing happen. Now, I, I read a tweet of yours where you state that you learned everything about craft and business from Pennyworth. I'll, I'll, I will I will be a different beast from here on in. So what did you yeah. mean by that? Well, I felt like Pennyworth is my first series regular role. And I learned so much about myself as an actor. I worked with more directors than I'd ever worked with in a short period of time. I learned more about the business, you know, contracts and money and producers and execs and all of these things that you can hear about, but you don't really get to experience firsthand until you are a series regular in a show. And so because I learned all those things on every level, business and creative, I just won't be the same actor now. Going forward, my confidence going into an, uh, a series regular show or a film is much higher. Working with new directors, much higher. Understanding the business of acting, all of it. I'm a, I'm a different beast. It's like I was in a, a championship fight, you know, you know, and mm. I can go back with new renewed energy for any further championship fight I get into. Well, like, well, there was one other quote I, I really liked of yours as well that I, I think connects. Um, you in your Twitter feed, you wrote, "Hard work eliminates fear." Yes. So, what do you mean by fear of what exactly, and and how does that elim- hard work eliminate it? Well, fear can be anything from insecurity, nerves, doubt, and hard work, as in you know, repeating, repeated of anything. So whether it's learning your lines, learning the stage directions, getting into character, just repeating all of the things you need to do constantly removes the ability to be nervous. So it's a, as a, if you're a sportsman, if you play basketball, if you practice 10 hours a day doing free throws from the free throw line, when you're in that championship game, your nerves are going to be far less than if you didn't put in those hours of work. Mm. It eliminates so, that kind of fear. So is, is that why you, I mean, why you work so hard in perfecting your craft and is it also hard work in the pursuit of more roles or is it in perfecting the craft? It's both really. I mean, the more work you put into something through repetition the better your muscle memory is and the more confident you feel, you know? It's just like, you know, we were all at school. If you really, really crammed and prepared for a test, how comfortable did you feel when you went and did that test? But if you only learned for an hour the night before and it's barely in your brain, then you go and sit down and do this test, you're just a lot more nervous because you're not sure that you did all the things that you needed to do. Mm. That's a, no, that's a very good point. So, 
what are you working on now? What's upcoming for you? I'm just, I'm just auditioning for lots of things. So potentially, I'm waiting to hear back because of Corona, it's frozen a few things. But I'm attached to a video game project, potentially. Um, oh, very cool. But I've got to wait to hear about that. I'm not sure what's happening. And in general, I'm just auditioning for, you know, different networks and TV channels, CW among among them so i'm just waiting to hear back corona's meant that some productions have been halted which means the casting process has been slowed down so i'm just waiting to hear back from certain things so will, will you keep keep me and spoiler country updated with as things um, progress oh 100 bro follow me on my socials i'll follow you guys back and as soon as anything changes or gets updated you know i'll be posting it anyway but yeah We'll, we can talk on there. And if you guys want me to come back, I will be more than happy to do that. I would absolutely love you, um, love for you to come back. And I, I, I am following you already on Twitter. So look for J-Hoss interviews. And I'll cool. make sure the Spoiler Country follows you as well on Twitter. Are you right. also on other platforms? Facebook I am. I'm on, I'm on Instagram. Um, Instagram. Just for my, my name, Hazy Lloyd Bennett, or The Last Day of May 31. But you can find it under my name, Verified. It's just me. So you can follow me on, yeah, on Instagram. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Well, fantastic. I definitely will follow you. I'll make sure the Spoiler Country specifically follows you, um, follows you as well. And yeah, anytime you have something to promote and want to talk about, come right back. I look very much forward to doing that, sir. And as soon as I do have something that I want to promote, you'll be the first guys I hit up, I promise. I greatly appreciate that. Have a fantastic day, sir. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you too, bro. I appreciate it. No problem. All right. That, that was so well. And I thank you again for being a great guest. Thank you, bro. I appreciate it. And yeah, we'll chat soon. All right. Have a very good day. Um, bye. <laughs> Take it easy. Bye. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, <laughs> I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you got to go check out SpoilerVerse.com. Because at SpoilerVerse.com, we have a plethora. Plethora is such a, it's such a snobbish word. I like it, though. <laughs> it's, it's a good word. <laughs> we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers and... Oh my God! Are you a lover of comic books like we are? And then there's so many. so many amazing people from the comic book world over at spoilerverse.com, and I highly implore you to go there and check it out. Yeah, and while you're there, you can check out all the other podcasts on our network, like Bridget the Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Haphazard Adventures and Nerds in the Crypt and so many more. Misery Point Radio episodes all the time. Misery Point Radio has got a ton of great stuff out there. Go check all of them out and. Check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you. Every day on Spoilerverse.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. You want to help support the site? You can do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash spoilercountry. Or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it you know, obviously on all the socials. But if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, 
I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to go with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind. And...